welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting-edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Welcome back to our next episode of Tech Law Talks. I am Sarah Bruno. I'm a partner here in San Francisco. My practice primarily focuses on the cross-section of advertising, privacy, and IP issues. I help a lot of our clients bring products and services to market and considering all of the issues that we have with data flowing, as well as advertising those products and services and clearing the IP issues as well. I'm excited today because I have my colleague Li Ling Po joining me. Li Ling, thank you for joining. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. I'm Li Ling Po. I'm a partner in the San Francisco office with the Global Corporate Group. I help a lot of clients make investments uh, in the cross-border context, as well as help in other sort of corporate cross-border transactions. And I'm happy to be here today. Thank you, Sarah. Great. Thanks, Leeling. I know that one of the reasons we were we, we were thinking that this would be an interesting podcast is just because we have been working together a lot recently, just given that a lot of our clients are, are crossing the line between both corporate and these tech transactions um, that are involving either the acquisition of a new platform or working with a vendor to bring some product to market. And you and I have been noodling over these issues. Certainly, I know in, in you in particular are doing a lot in the healthcare space. And I know that recently we had a transaction involving a cross-border transaction involving a big healthcare app. Do you want to just talk about that quickly? Yeah, it was a, and I'm, you know, thank you so much for your help on that. And I think it really showcases our ability to leverage our other offices internationally and both here in the U.S. to deliver great service to a client, especially a global client. So in that deal, you know, Sarah and I were both working and advising a pharmaceutical client who is operating globally in their partnership with a digital health service provider. And there was to be a rollout of the product, this app, this digital health app. And the rollout was going to occur both in the UK, EU, Asia Pacific, as well as the US. And it's been exciting to work together and advise the client on not just only issues that may arise within the U.S., but additional considerations abroad. And I think we're seeing this with a lot of our clients where, you know, in in this age where there's less of the brick and mortar type stores or offices or points of contact, clients are thinking about different ways to engage their customer base or to keep in touch with their customers. So this is where I think technology comes in is helpful And as a result, you know, we're coming across more of these issues on a more global context. Right. And as soon as a transaction involves customers, I know that all of our uh, bells start going off with respect to the data. And that's where these things often land on my desk, just because one, we're, we're facing customers typically with some sort of software or app or platform which means we're, we're dealing with the, the e-commerce issues there, but then also the, the data and the privacy issues that come up. And certainly the first question I have, and you kind of already touched on it, is what jurisdictions do we have involved? In that deal in particular, we had a lot of jurisdictions involved. 
but it is the most important question, I think, off the bat in the in the privacy realm, just because you have to appreciate what laws you're going to be considering. Of course, if we are collecting data from European residents, we have to think about the GDPR. We have to think about the cross-border implications of transferring that data outside of Europe to the United States. That's when I would pull in one of our colleagues from Europe, certainly to help advise on that, because that is a moving target, certainly, and one that we want to make sure we carefully consider. And then, of course, here in the United States, we right now have the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is driving a lot of the conversations with respect to what we need in contracts when we're collecting data from California consumers. And certainly the the next question we have once we, we drill down on the jurisdictions and assuming we are collecting data from California consumers is if we have a relationship that where the vendor or third party, if we can call them a service provider under the CCPA, which essentially means that they're not selling the data, but also that they're only going to use the data for the purposes of providing our client with a service. We certainly want to try to put them in that bucket and have the contract have the appropriate language so that we don't have to have this do not sell link that a lot of companies have put on their website just because they don't have a service provider relationship. And that means they're exchanging the data in a manner that would be considered a sale under the CCPA. So these are all questions that we're hashing out when we have a piece of paper on our desk and we're trying to to figure out what provisions we need in the contract. I know another issue, and this came up with, with that transaction in particular, is sensitive information. So once we we figure out the roles of the party and, and who's who's doing what, I mean, the next, I think, most important question is what is the nature of the data that's being collected and whether or not we have the appropriate security provisions in that agreement to address that, that data. Certainly, if there's biometric data, which I know, Leeling, in, in your world with the healthcare work that you do, there's often that consideration, which is the fact that we have very sensitive data that's being exchanged between these two parties. So we do have to drill down on those security provisions. And that often involves not not only legal brains, of course, but more important is pulling in individuals from the IT groups at sometimes at both clients. We have them all either, well, now on Zoom, (laughs) all on Zoom, reviewing those provisions and making sure that, you know, we we do have the the appropriate cross checks between both parties and that we're doing the diligence to make sure that both parties can maintain that information in accordance with what we consider to be reasonable security for the more sensitive type of information that could be exchanged. Yeah, I mean, I know, Sarah, you and I recently had spoken to a prospective client, and one of the questions they actually asked us was how we're able to work with their tech team and our tech team. And Mm -hmm. I think both of us have found it very helpful to have the client's tech team as well as, you know, people with the requisite legal uh, and technical expertise within the firm to sort of be in the room to brainstorm about what next steps are to understand the nature of the technology and the information and data that's being conveyed. That's absolutely right. And it's such an exciting part of what we do because we're st- well, we're always learning as lawyers still, and in this space especially, because here we are having to bring in these individuals. And certainly we're learning, we're learning about the security requirements associated with certain parts of parts of what our clients are doing. But we're also coming up with solutions where we can apply the law to those requirements so that we can we can come up with a story that works within the agreement. Yeah, I mean, I think I really it's one of those areas. And I think we've talked about this before where, you know, understanding the client 
and their business becomes so important. And that's what we get really excited about. Right. I mean, having, yeah, and getting the opportunity to learn about that. And I think also, you know, we've used a lot of our colleagues in other offices and other practice groups too. And it's sort of that great compatibility between being able to provide the services of a large law firm to a client, as well as the local, very sort of tailored counsel that we're able to give, especially in areas that are highly regulated, like you had mentioned, healthcare, maybe financial services, telecommunications, IP and such. Yeah. And I know that for you in particular, a lot of the deals that you're working on um, are these cross-border considerations. So not only do you have to think about those niche areas here in the United States, I know you're also racking your brain thinking about what what you have to worry about when you're dealing with cross-border transactions. Definitely. I think, you know, we definitely look have to look pretty closely at, you know, the other parties to the transactions, taking a look at uh, what region, part of the country that they are located in, you know, is this an area which is, you know, perhaps subject to economic sanctions? Are there concerns about national security, matters like that, as well as, you know, is the other party affiliated with a government entity? If it is, then, you know, there are additional considerations that have to be taken into account. And sort of as we touched on just now, the technology or the products that are in play become very important because there are risks, obviously, that become more heightened based on the industry that we're dealing with. So I know in areas of defense, aerospace, energy, financial services, as well as technology and communications, uh, when those industry areas pop up in terms of a deal, we start to look a little bit more carefully as well. These are all heavily regulated industries, so we want to make sure within the U.S. and abroad that we're looking into taking into account the right considerations. Um, and right. I, I don't know, yeah, I don't know, Sarah, whether you've come across it, but when you've done some of these international or cross-border deals, have you had or your client had to deal with middlemen? Yeah, from time to time, and I know that you were you said recently that you had one that did use a middleman. That was a good example, if you're able to expand on that. Yeah, I think, you know, for some of the ways some of the cross-border deals are brokered, sometimes there involves a middleman who is speaking on behalf of one of the parties, particularly the party that would be outside of the U.S. And it's important to figure out, there are a couple of considerations. One is to make sure, obviously, that the person that you're speaking to or you're negotiating with has the right authority and power to be able to negotiate on behalf of the other party. Sometimes there can be, if this isn't sort of fleshed out, there can be some opaqueness about the role of that middleman person. And uh, it also increases corruption risks when you have more middlemen involved and you're not dealing with the party directly because there might be other sort of transactions that are taking place that you're unaware of that may impact the deal. So that's something that I know some of our clients have come across too. I'm going to ask a question of you, Leeling. I don't know if you'll know the answer for this. So, but, but do you typically have a contract with the middleman that's separate from the deal you're working on? I typically prefer not to have that. And I think 
in some of the deals, I feel that the middleman is helpful in perhaps connecting the parties and smoothing over, you know, dealing with logistical things, making sure that the right people are at the table, setting up the tone and the timing of conversations and meetings between the parties. But in the end, what we'd really like to see is to have the other party sign that dotted line. That's great. I know that also just on the cross-border considerations, we have to think about the intellectual property. Um, we've, we've talked about the data, but there's also the IP issues and the ownership issues associated with the IP and making sure that you're protecting the product and all the markets that you intend to launch in. In addition, you're, you're getting the appropriate warranties with respect to whatever IP is being incorporated from the third party as well. And certainly when you're doing business in, in certain parts of the world, you, you do want to make sure your clients are protecting whatever that product or service is from an intellectual property standpoint in the market that they're intending to launch in. And all of that would be part of the consideration with respect to the IP and what you're licensing and what you want to make sure you maintain control on as far as the IP goes. And also with respect to what rights you're willing to grant there as well. And this would be all part of, again, those discussions. And I know that also can be when the middleman plays a role as well, because they often are there helping clarify and define the rights with, with respect to the party they're representing as far as the IP goes. Definitely. I know that we've also run into situations where, you know, if both sides are maybe coming to table with some form of IP, or maybe there's IP that's developed as a result of the collaboration or the partnership, there needs to be a, I would expect sort of in writing a conversation and documentation as to how that ownership plays out. Absolutely. Whether you want to be joint owners or whether one party is going to be the owner and the other will just be a licensee. And on that though, we have to also think about when you mentioned the middleman, we also have to think about vetting these parties that we're dealing with. In addition to the vendors we're using, we want to make sure we have some due diligence process for these, these third parties, whether it be a middleman or whether it be the provider we're looking at to enter a relationship with. And I know that this is something that often happens before they pull the lawyers in. And from my standpoint, one of the most important considerations is security and making sure that the party that we're dealing with has been vetted by our IT guys with respect to the security and their ability to provide the security for the service that they're, they're offering. And that comes up, especially with respect to biometric data in particular, just because we're dealing with such sensitive information and a lot of the technology is so new in that area that it's, it, it can be difficult for these, these companies to vet these vendors and to, to make sure that they have the systems in place and they can perform in the manner that they're promising that they can perform. Certainly, we have uh, on our side in the data privacy world, we have data security addendums and provisions that we want to make sure our clients include in their agreements. But again, that's part of that, that conversation we have with the technical team. And like I said, it's now via Zoom where we're all sitting around making sure that that the client's team approves the security provisions that we're asking our, our vendors and third parties to incorporate in the agreements. What else do, what else do you think about with respect to that, that due diligence kind of vendor vetting process? Yeah, they're definitely, I would say that as we had mentioned earlier, you want to tailor your due diligence efforts to the level of risk, you know, depending on who the other parties are and where they're located. 
and whether or not the vendor is providing a service that's central or critical to the company's functions. What I'd like to see also is uh, definitely an ability, a contractual ability to audit or have inspection rights with the vendor. I mean, there you're able to use local law firms or consulting firms sometimes to help you do that on the ground if you're not able to do so yourself. And that provides a certain level of comfort because I think, especially in this day and age, people are also looking to make sure that their vendors and their service providers that they're using have values that are in alignment and that they conduct their business in a manner that aligns with the client's expectations and values and operations as well. Yeah. And actually, it's funny you mentioned audit because this literally just came up for me this morning. I was working with a client and a third party said they absolutely under no circumstances allow audits of their system. They don't allow third parties to audit their system. So, you know, we're, we're stuck with, with weighing the risk of not being able to confirm certain security systems with moving forward with that transaction. And, and there we contemplate solutions such as having them provide us with certifications and reports related to their security on an annual basis but certainly when, when you think through whether if an incident happens in that relationship, you have to think through the risk to the client that if there is a data incident, are they going to be feel comfortable moving forward with that vendor without that right to confirm any of the security? So certainly the audit comes up again with the security component. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, you're right, Sarah, like in other cases too, sometimes in addition or perhaps in your case, aside from the security type audit, you know, you're going to try and get a sense of the policies of the company to help provide some of that comfort too, whether it's like hiring or data policies or their practice of doing business. Yeah. And that can be all part of that due diligence process is sometimes just even asking if they have, well, on my side, written in written information security policy is an important question to ask if they have that It's even baked into some contracts, of course, that that is part of the promise that we ask that vendor to make. And I've I've also, you know, been in deals where we're requiring not only proof of that written information security policy, but we're also asking to see internal documentation that they follow it or their incident response plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, again, just when you're looking at the nature of the data being exchanged and you're weighing the risk associated with that data it can make you feel more comfortable to have that additional kind of level of due diligence prior to finalizing that deal. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's so many additional implications too, because you want to make sure, for example, if you're dealing with a cross-border matter that you're not tripping up uh, anything in the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or anything like that. So agreed. And I've actually started to see provisions to relating to actually virtual audits too. So that so that's been an interesting development, I feel. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. And on that note, I mean, I, I think it's good because we're moving, we've moved to this virtual environment and many of us aren't sure if we're going back to the office. So I do think it's good that we're forward thinking in that way, but it, it is a little daunting. Well, Li Ling, this was fun. Thanks for joining today and thanks all for listening in. And we will look forward to the next episode of Tech Wall Talks. Thanks, Sarah. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, 
please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.